0: Everyone who is sitting next to someone with a physical Bible, please put your phones away. <laughs> Good morning. Please turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 as we continue through our study in Ecclesiastes. And as we do, let's uh, pray and uh, ask the Lord for help. Please bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled that we have your word. We have your word in its purest form. Although in broken translation often at times, we can still understand the clarity, the, the perspicuity of your word. It is clear. It is obvious to us. Please help us to understand it. That our hearts be softened. And that we would be willing and ready to obey by the power of your spirit. Please help me in in terms of delivering this word faithfully uh, to my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. So this study has been an ongoing study um, through Ecclesiastes, and I want to remind us of where we're at uh, in terms of the study. So I do believe that the theme of the book, uh, in, in terms of life under the sun, uh, is to explore the vanity of this life. And this vanity is true for all of us. It's not just uh, the unbeliever. It's it's for all of us. We have a vain existence in the sense that we come and go. We die, right? And it's a, death is the ultimate enemy to be conquered by Jesus Christ in the end. It's the last enemy uh, to be put under the footstool of Christ. And so what I mean by vanity, in a lot of ways, our life is chasing after the wind. Our life is running after things and working super hard only in the end to face death, which is hard. It's, it's a challenge. And, and in some cases, if you think of it this way and you meditate on it too long, which uh, is a tendency of some that read Ecclesiastes, is to just give up and throw your hands up and say, well, what's, why do anything? Why go after anything? Which would be to miss, I believe, the entire point of Ecclesiastes. And in many cases, the entire point of the Bible There are two people under the sun that live this vain life. There are one that are god fears, and there there are others who are wicked. And both have an end. Both will ultimately face God as Solomon concludes in Ecclesiastes 12. One will face God receiving a reward in Christ. The other will face God in ultimate destruction. And so today my hope is that in this gospel presentation, Uh, according to Ecclesiastes, that those who are in Christ are encouraged, and those who are wicked repent and believe. Now, the structure of the book uh, deals with this, just just to remind us and refresh us kind of where we're at in terms of, of, I believe, this argument that Solomon is trying to convey to us. There are creaturely limitations according to chapter 1 through 2. There's things that are just impossible for us to grasp, impossible for us to understand, Impossible for us to make sense of in some cases, uh, based on our limited perspective of reality. In chapters 3 through 5, we get a clear understanding that we are uh, associated with a sovereign creator, that God is in control over all things, that he rules and is sovereign over all things. In chapters 6 through 8, verses 15, there is a controlled and empowered joy that we can experience. Uh, in this vanity under the sun, life can be meaningful and actually enjoyed by those who fear God. And in chapters eight, sixteen through twelve, fourteen, which is the conclusion of the book, there is a conflict resolved that will come to a conclusion. B- meaning, really more more than anything, what I hope to have conveyed up into this point, as it is a matter of perspective. The book is trying to help us provide get a better, have a better perspective of reality. And this is why I say it's a wonderful structure for apologetics. Apologetics is to give it a, a defense for the hope that lies within us, according to 1 Peter 3.15, that we honor Lord, that Christ is Lord. And when people look into our lives and they see this joy, this overflowing joy in our life, when maybe we might be experiencing a crushing, a difficulty, a bitter providence, as some like to call it, they look into our lives and they go, wait a minute. How is it that you could be persecuted, suffering, have, experiencing incredible difficulty, yet experience in some way, shape, or form a joy? Solomon's answering that question. So far, verse, chapters 1 through 7 give us a very clear, distinct answer. If you fear God, you can have joy because God empowers you to have the capacity to experience joy in the midst of great trials, suffering, tribulation, and even persecution. But if you're wicked, you can enjoy nothing. Because it's God who gives the power to enjoy anything. So picking up in chapter 7, in this idea of controlled joy and empowered joy, uh, that we recognize that really we have no control over our own lives, that we live under the sovereign rule of God, and God in some cases brings incredible blessing into our life, an overwhelming abundance of blessings, and in some cases the blessing of trial and tribulation. And as we explored last week in chapter 7, we, we explored this idea of not being overly righteous or to make ourselves too wise, starting here in verse 16. And he poses the question, if you're doing these things, if you're this overly righteous person or this too wise person, uh, that you would destroy yourself. If you're overly wicked, um, you're a fool, and that you would die before your time. And he's saying that understanding these things, it's good that you would take hold of these things and not withhold your hand from them, for the one who fears God shall come from both of them. And that's a really ambiguous verse. That's a hard verse to understand, actually. Uh, you you have, uh, may have different versions in here that, that express it in a different way. And what I believe what he's saying here in verse 18 is, is more of uh, we have to hold on to something and let go of something else. We have to grasp and understand one thing and we have to be quick to avoid something else so what he drove at last week it's not righteousness is not a bad thing right hopefully i got that through righteousness is not a bad thing we we christ is our righteousness christ is righteous god is righteous it's a good thing right it's to be right uh, before god right to be holy to be perfect so he's not saying uh, in the sense of overly well how could you be too much righteous that's that's not the idea he's getting at it's a hypocritical righteousness it's a righteousness as I described from the garden a righteousness that defines uh, that is defined in your own eyes a righteousness that that you know you think you're right uh, and you're defining that beyond the way God has defined it in his word to be overly wise wisdom is a good thing we should be pursuing wisdom Uh, Christ is the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge right so we should be Solomon's obviously not saying we shouldn't be pursuing Christ of course not what he's saying is you need to pursue a godly wisdom not a wisdom of what's right in your own eyes trying to define reality on your own and the overly wicked he's not saying "Well, be somewhat wicked and that's okay no he's saying that if you're wicked and you're overly wicked meaning you're, you're going off the deep end in your wickedness, you could die before your time. God's actually going to take you out, right? Some of us might have experienced that, right, of what that's like. We're pursuing a path of wickedness, and we're going so overboard in it that we, our lives almost end. God will, will take us out of this world because we're destroying it. So what I want to explore today is what, what Solomon concludes in this argument, This idea of the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. That's an interesting statement if you think about it. Here's what I think he's driving at. We have to understand what righteousness is. We have to understand what wickedness is. And that we can only understand that based on what's revealed in God's word, right? There are a group of people who have a tendency to be overly righteous, and there's a group of people who have a tendency to be overly wicked. There's a group of people who have a tendency to be overly wise. Let me give you some examples that I think will help frame this up a little bit. Over the the course of the last few years, I have a particular individual that follows me on Facebook and makes it his, his personal vendetta with me to comment on anything that I say related to the Bible his name is Jeff Masty, and I hope he's watching. Maybe I 'll reference this so I can say, "Hey, Jeff, I brought you up in the sermon this last week. Jeff uh, sees it as like he wants to mock me, he wants to punk me. I, I brought up something that if you don't have God's word, you have no hope in the world, something along those lines. I just posted it recently, and he posts like a, you know a care heart, you know a care face with a heart thing in it, and you know it's like, oh, you know, bless your soul, kind of guy, right? situation and, and uh, I challenged him. I said, Jeff, you know, what do you mean? Like, why you know, why do you always seem to point out and want to mock what I have to say when it comes to me quoting about Scripture, things about Christianity and whatnot? And uh, I challenged him. I said, well, you know, why don't you believe the Bible, Jeff? And his response to me is like, well, that, that silly God thingy, whatever, I don't believe in all that. No, I'm like, why don't you believe the Bible and what the Bible has to say about God? And he, he responds with, well, I have problems with authorship. You know, I have some serious challenges. You know that not not all the authors of the Bible who say they're the authors might are the authors, or they might not be. There's questions that I have about those things. So then I asked him a further question: Where are you getting your information from? Right. Just simply put, where are you getting that information from? What do you mean they're, they're the the authors who say they're the authors? Clearly, they're the authors. Right? Why don't you think they're the authors? Well, there's these schools like Yale and Harvard and Oxford. <laughs> and some, some of you are laughing. European uh, scholarship that would disagree with those things. And I said, yeah, well, they're basing their observation of Scripture from their worldview. They're interpreting the evidence from their worldview. When I said that, he said, oh, see, see, you're, you're, you're hammering on the worldview thingy again. You didn't even answer my question. Who do you think it is? Anybody who studied any of Greg Bonson's work would know that evidence does not interpret itself, right? Evidence doesn't say, this is how you ought to interpret me, right? So there's all this evidence out there, and the way we observe this evidence is by what? Our worldview, what we believe about reality, which means what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about the world that's around us. Right? And so we interpret that evidence by our worldview. It's not, it's not just this neutral position where we just go, hmm, that's how it should be and that's exactly what it is. No, no, no. We, we interpret it through our atheism. We interpret the worldview through our Christianity, our broken Christianity, and whatever it might be. We interpret everything through our worldview, the fundamental beliefs of, of reality. Okay. And then he goes on to say, well, my fundamental beliefs are kind of my personal experience, my limited experience here. What I can interact with is you know, basically all the things that I could know, and I know we exist. Now, anybody who studied Greg Bonson would know the next, the next step, and some will laugh, right? Which is, well, okay, then Buckwheat, why are you arguing with me? Why are you mocking me constantly? You notice how you go from like, so when I try to engage with you intellectually, And I press your beliefs, and I ask you really hard questions, you go to mockery. That's interesting to me. Think about it. All you said, you basically said, all I have is a limited life under the sun, and that which I interact with is all I could really know. And then I said, so you can't know really anything with certainty, right? Oh, certainty, well, there's the big word. No one could know anything with certainty, yet you mock me you mock me you make it a point to mock me every time i bring something up that is certain about you having no hope in the world apart from this the living word of god and you mock me why do i say that well you must have some certainty that this is not the living god word of the living god enough to mock me you know the truth so well that i'm just some silly christian who believes that this is the word of god yet all you have is under the sun with your limited experience your mere existence and then you just continue to mock me saying that we can have no certainty do you see the problem there guys do you see the problem on one case he has this certain understanding that this can't possibly be the word of god based on what yale harvard and i added princeton for him too because he didn't include them right in oxford and others and these european scholars these high who come from high German criticism, which produced, by the way, liberal theology. Liberal theology, which gives us the ability to excuse ourselves away from the authority of Scripture, all authority as a product of the Enlightenment. And that product of the Enlightenment has produced much of the progressive Christianity that we have today. Ones that embrace the LGBTQ community as though that's perfectly fine. It's okay to be a gay Christian, for example. Why? Well, because, you know, we don't know if that's really what Paul meant to say. And does that really apply to our time? It gives us all kinds of opportunity to twist and change around what this is the authority of all matters of life and faith has to say. Here's a man mocking me when he can't. all he has is his limited experience under the sun, can't be certain about anything, but yet he is certain that this is not the word of God. That's the one thing he's certain of, right? Well, here's the problem. Anybody who studied Bonson would know there's one step further. The one step further for you guys, and I hope this clicks some light bulbs for you today. I really do. It's going to be incredibly helpful for you when it comes to building your life upon the Word of God. And what it means to be delivered from destruction in Christ is the impossibility of the contrary. Meaning, you cannot build your life in any other way and expect it not to end in destruction apart from Christ. I'm going to repeat that. You can't build your life any other way. You can, meaning, you can't you can't build your life outside of God's word. God's revealed world word and in any other way, and not expect it to end in destruction. It will. To not expect it to end in inconsistency, and incoherence, and ultimately absurdity. And that's not just some something that I'm saying. Like, well, that's an, that's a neat claim, but can you prove it? Yes, I can absolutely prove it. I can prove it over and over and over again it's self-attesting it makes the claim itself it says this is my word god says this is my word and you either follow it or be destroyed here's another example so that would be the overly wise atheist example he's so wise he's a fool and that foolishness could be pointed out over and over and over to him until really his eyes are open his ears hear and his heart turns and he's delivered from destruction And then all of a sudden he goes, wow, instead of just embracing absurdity and incoherence and inconsistency, because I love my sin, I love Christ now, who is the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge. And now I can make sense of my life. Why? Because I have the very framework to build my life upon. There's another one. The overly righteous is the Pharisee uh, in, in examples all throughout Scripture, right? Particularly the New Testament, the Pharisee, the one who loves god's law so much that he he, cre- he creates all sorts of boundaries around god's law just in case we don't break it just to make sure we don't violate it it's called creating a, a man's laws according to man's perspective right so we're going to create all these extra boundaries around god's law in order to avoid not breaking it or violating it again this person this overly righteous person this zealous person is doing what's right in their own eyes. And it ends, as I shared last week, and I would encourage you, go on YouTube. All of our sermons are there to look at how we explored what those, uh, what those examples look like, right? But guess what it does? It ruins you. It destroys you. It's the very text that we read today from Ephesians. It breaks you down, right? It, it, it roots bitterness inside of you. You start looking down your nose at people. You're hostile towards fellow believers in Christ because you hold and erect these, you have these, these culturally, what I call culturally defined scruples, these examples that maybe you had experienced in the past of what you considered what a godly church looked like or what godly people looked like. And what it does is it creates divisions. If you notice, man, I can't, I, I went through, I listened to quite a bit of the, uh, the epistles this week and the patterns in the epistles it's interesting paul's always trying to press people back to who they are in christ he's pointing them look who you are in christ yet then these things happen like let me give you an example galatians you guys are familiar with the story in galatians galatians was written to to settle a dispute between jew and gentile and by the way so was romans and really much of the new testament because the jews who were born again didn't know how to assimilate with the gentiles but galatians is a special example we're going to get into that in a little bit. What happened? Peter, out of fear of the circumcision of the Jews, the Judaizers, separated himself from Gentile believers, creating a distinction again that Christ broke down, that Christ destroyed. Why? Because there was this idea of righteousness. They, they had an idea of what righteousness looked like and what a right, how, how righteousness should appear. And we don't associate with those guys because those guys in our association with them could make us unrighteous right and what did Paul do he rebuked Peter to his face said he stood condemned Peter's a born-again believer he's apostle stood condemned before the living God so that's an overly righteous and then of course we don't need to go into the unending examples of what overly wickedness wickedness looks like I believe that this word today has a providential timing to it when I was reading through it I'm like man I love our church I really do. I love our church a lot. I love being the, a pastor at this church. I love being your pastor, okay? As a pastor, one thing that's really difficult is as you're kind of assessing what's going on with the church, the sort of putting your, your finger on the pulse of the church, as you're reading through the Word, you're like, how could I appropriately deliver this Word to the body in a way that, that would be understandable to them, that would apply to what we're dealing with right now? Let me kind of help you guys through this, okay? Um, In assessing our church, there are many wonderful things about our church, okay? Um, We have a zealous people here, okay? We're Reformed Baptists, right? Confessional, second, you know, London Baptist Confession, 1689, okay? And we love the Word. We're passionate about the Word. We're zealous about the Word, okay? Okay? And it's interesting if you guys ever notice, like we'll have visitors coming, and I'm not calling out our visitors today. I'm, I'm so happy you're here, but we have we'll have visitors, okay? And then we brought I brought up examples. I uh, said so visitors have these certain like ideas um, defined in their mind of what a church, a good church is, what what a pastor should look like, how he should speak, how he should dress, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, what how a church should function we get this idea concept of the regulative principle of worship and if you're unfamiliar with that term that's okay greg see greg he'll he'll describe it to you after after church or jonathan um regulative principle of worship is the structure of worship what what it should look like from the call of worship to the benediction okay and everything in between and how that should be should, should go how we should go about worship think about the kind of culture that we have here the kind of people that we have here today okay very passionate about that people are attracted to our church for those reasons right faithfully deliver the word we get after it you know we engage with our communities we we're, we're evangelistic in terms of our outreach uh we care but it's interesting like look around you how many people are here today <laughs> we have some missing people but this is is, it, is this a large sum of people am i am i preaching to a mass swath of thousands of people today no why because we're weirdos in the eyes of others we are why are we weirdos oh man and i've heard it guys and i'm sure you've heard it too you guys take this way too serious man you guys are hardcore with your communion man you guys are like too intense dude when it comes to like the way you engage with people outside that whole end abortion now thing where you're working to like end abortion and stuff, there has got to be other ways to address this thing so it's not like so in your face. Don't condemn those women, the ones who are determined in their mind to murder their children. Don't condemn them, right? That's hardcore. That's harsh. Then there are people who are attracted to our church. Think about this, the kind of people, what attracted you here? It was like, yes, the love for the word, yes, the confessional thing, you know, the historic confession that kind of stuff is awesome deep theology you love that you love the brotherhood Um, love all those things but though something happened uh just a, a few years ago this tremendous event this plandemic happened you heard it here i said it a plandemic happened and what happened all these churches shut down they shut down and some some like shut down not just for a few weeks not for a couple months some years they were doing the live stream thingy for years live streaming is not church you guys this is the fellowship this is where the people are worshiping the living god together in unity they're still doing the live streaming thingy and some churches shut down completely why because people left people left those churches and came to churches like ours There are some churches that grew and some churches that shrank and some churches that just shut down altogether, sadly. And I'm not here calling into question uh, those leaders had to make the decision, but I am saying there was a firm stance that was taken and made once we recognized that the wool was being pulled over our eyes by our government. Yes, the government does that. It cannot be trusted. They're run by sinners. And that's why we have the structure that we have where there's rotations in leadership and authority it's why we're a constitutional republic set up with democratic processes so that we can remove those leaders those sinful leaders when they need to be removed so you have people who are coming here now as a result of that and these people happen to be very zealous some people coming out of cults some people coming out of horrible backgrounds some people who grew up in Christian homes and some people who didn't. We have an interesting conglomerate of people here. We also have sojourners and travelers, military folks, right? Who come here every two years or three years and then they, then they go. They get transferred somewhere else. We, we gain people, we lose people all the time. They come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different parts of the world in some cases and different parts of the U.S., they all have an idea of what christianity looks like too you notice that this is what christianity really is they all have an idea of what the perfect church looks like you ever notice that they come here and they have their critiques they come some stay and some go the question that i have today based on this experience that i have now going into our seventh year and not growing to thousands for a reason Is because some of these people are so firmly fixed in their position on what a good church and what christianity looks like they've stayed and some are so firmly fixed they've left and my challenge to you today is did they do that for the right reason are you staying for the right reason and are you leaving for the right reason right how do we sort this out in our minds that's the next question there are people who come out of these lives have been delivered from destruction they call themselves christians they are in christ how do we sort through this i first i would challenge you today we must fear god and why why must we fear god look at proverbs 9 the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom that's where it starts the knowledge of the holy one is insight for by me your days will be multiplied your years years will be added to your life proverbs 8 concludes with that unless you embrace wisdom you love death fear the lord is the beginning of that wisdom in psalm 19 it says the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple the precepts of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the lord is clean enduring forever the rules of the lord are true and righteous altogether More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is a great reward. With that in mind, we should recognize real clearly from the the outset, none of us, none of us have fulfilled that. None, None of us really, if we're being perfectly honest, have seen it that way and embraced it that way we still as i argued last week with eve attempt in some way shape or form to erect and construct what is right in our own eyes we come up with our own idea of what purity is we're our own idea of what is clean our own idea of what's going to endure forever our own idea of what is right our own idea of what will rejoice our heart right think about it we do it we is we struggle with this we don't fully embrace what the Word of God has to say, which really means we don't fear God. We don't. Which is why we need Christ. That's exactly why we need Christ. What can we boast in? I love what Jeremiah says in 9.23-24. Think about this. What can you bring to the Lord? Mother Teresa, Gandhi, and all these other people who are wise in their own eyes, who lived this so-called righteous life, completely apart from christ what can they boast in in front of the lord think about it john macarthur god bless him brilliant man wonderful man great pastor walked with the lord for many years has what had a ministry for 40 something been a pastor forever longer than i've been alive right that dude has nothing to boast in in front of the lord apart from christ whoever you exalt in the highest level you think man that guy's got it charles spurgeon you know old ch Whoever you think this exalted person is in your mind listen to what Jeremiah has to say about them thus says the Lord let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the mighty man boast in his might let not the rich man boast in his riches but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these I delight declares the Lord So you have nothing to bring. As a matter of fact, Isaiah says uh, just everything, all of our righteousness is filthy rags in his sight. Everything. Think about this. Isaiah, brilliant. Could it be considered a righteous man? In the presence of the living God says, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips who dwells amongst men of unclean lips. We're all impure before the living God, right? So we have nothing to boast in. Think about this. There is a great equalizer among all peoples in in the fear of God. Okay, Romans three nine through nineteen. Oh, and those who are taking notes, that was Jeremiah nine twenty three through twenty four. Sorry, in Romans three verses nine through nineteen, Paul says none is righteous, not one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's speaking of all men. There's no fear of God. Why? These people continually come up with what they think is right in their own eyes. They do it over and over and over and over again. They do it with righteousness, they do it with wisdom and wickedness. They do it with what they think is right and what they think is wrong. And there's no fear of God. In Romans three twenty one through four twelve, you could just read that section on your own. I picked this section out. Paul identifies the reality of all men that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But all are all are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and Paul says and notice he concludes here in verse 27 he says what becomes of our boasting then so if we're if we're if we're saved by the grace of God and it has absolutely nothing to do with us then what becomes of our boasting he said nothing it's excluded there is no boasting Paul argues in in uh, Romans 4 2 he says if Abraham was justified by works if anything he could boast in anything that he did He has something to boast about, but not before God. He might be justified before man. Like, think about it, the Gandhi, the Mother Teresa type example. We look at them and we go, but they were really great people. Oh, okay, maybe in the eyes of man, but they have absolutely nothing to boast about before the living God. And why do I say that? I'm going to skip ahead if you note here that uh solomon points that out he says surely in verse 20 in in chapter 7 here there's not a righteous man on earth who does who does good and never sins there's something about the condition about the reality of what we are you could be the most righteous person on earth and as uh, what i believe paul's arguing here in romans is you you have nothing to boast about before god there's some men could look in your life and go wow man great guy great gal awesome people good peeps right nothing to boast about before the living god all have sinned and fallen short from the glory of god but what does scripture say as paul carries on his argument in romans 4 verses 3 through 8 abraham believed god and it was counted to him for righteousness now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift but his due meaning it's something that he is owed if he is working that person is now owed something We cannot work for our salvation or redemption. We cannot work to be justified in Christ. God owes us nothing. It is 100% a free gift is what he's trying to drive at. The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing to the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin so all who are in Christ is my argument here as I continue are to pursue the treasures and wisdom of knowledge found in Christ and are justified by faith in such not by our works think about um, second Peter what he says like the the idea of the knowledge of Christ should build things in us like virtue and self-control and brotherly love and a depth and an understanding of who God is and who we are, right? And we won't be lacking, Peter says. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians about this, chapter two, verses 11 through 21. Here's this idea of um, the, the total thought is chapter two, 11 through 21, but this section I wanted to tap on in uh, uh, verses 15 through 16. He says, "We ourselves are Jews by birth, and we're not Gentile sinners." Yet we know that a person is not justified by, his, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because works of the law, no one will be justified. He goes on to say, if righteousness were through the law, verse 21, then Christ died for no purpose. If it's something that you could work out on your own, Christ died for no purpose, essentially. Right? Right? Paul goes on to challenge them. He says in in chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, let me ask you uh, only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So you're born again, and you're born again knowing that it had nothing to do with you, that all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And now all of a sudden, You're perfecting this through your flesh? How? How are you able to do that? You can't. You can't perfect what Christ is perfecting in you by your flesh. It has nothing to do with you. Christ is the one that promises to work in and through you, to to complete what he started in you, all the way to the end. In Galatians 3 23 through 29, he says this Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law and prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And he goes on to... Uh, expound out this incredible argument of what what it means to be in uh, part of the seed of promise or the, or the curse what it means to be in Christ or apart from Christ we have been delivered from wrath to life we have been delivered from division to unity from a privileged status in some cases to equality we are all one in Christ Ephesians two says that so clearly. He says, "You were once dead in your trespasses and sin." Chapter two, verses one through three, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, crying out, uh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind nothing special about us we're all in this together we were all once that way and what does paul say as he continues on verses 5 through 6 even when we were dead through our in our trespasses we we're made alive together in christ by grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus it's all an act and a work of God. It's a miraculous act and work of God. No matter what background you came from, no matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, slave or free, barbarian or Scythian, no matter what, doesn't matter. Jew, think about it. You are all one in Christ. All those things have been destroyed. There will now be uh, unity and equality, and that privileged status, if I could say, is in Christ. It's not about who we are and what we are, what we've attained and what we've accomplished, how much we know or don't know. Who we spend our time with and who we don't he goes on we are his workmanship god's workmanship in christ created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and he goes on in verse 11 through 12 remember that at one time you were uh you gentiles meaning everybody who's not a jew right a gentile is everyone who is not a jew You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's a pretty dire situation. Amen? That's all of us. All of us. But we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, he says. Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two so making peace that he might reconcile us both to god in one body through the christ thereby killing the hostility so then you're no longer strangers you're no longer aliens you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god he's saying this to gentiles now you can quite imagine <laughs> Why Peter would have had a hard time as he is associating with him and here's Paul declaring this about Gentile believers Why Paul would have rebuked Peter so fiercely to his face. These are our brothers and sisters. They're fellow citizens They're not strangers and aliens anymore They're part of the household of God which has been what built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you remember, Jesus said this in John 4 to the woman at the well. There come a time when worship isn't going to happen here or there, right? <laughs> Between the Samaritans and the, and the Jews. But God, God will be worshipped in Spirit and truth everywhere. That's what He desires. Here Jesus is saying we're that temple that He's dwelling in being built up by the spirit of the living god and he's saying that to gentiles can you imagine what kind of hostility would have been between the two groups of people so we must fear god boast in nothing but christ and work toward the bond of unity and peace in christ that is our obligation and if you're not doing that you have no fear of god you have no fear of god and you are destined for destruction apart from christ If this is not your effort, if there's something going on inside of you where you're missing this, you have no fear of God and you're destined for destruction and you need to repent and turn to Christ. With this in mind, you need to remember this, that God saves, He sanctifies, brings the foolishly zealous, hypocritically religious, and most perverse pagans to glorification in Christ. Let me repeat that. God saves and sanctifies. It is his work. Think of Romans 8, the golden chain of redemption. He predestines these people. Paul says in Romans, or Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the, uh, of the world was even laid, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And he promises and guarantees the sanctification occurred. Even though when you're looking at them, you might be going, we're not really that sanctified. How long have you been walking with the Lord, right? If you're erecting up in your mind of what sanctification ought to look like in someone's life, I'm not saying gross sin I'm not saying that we aren't to call one another out and to hold one another accountable but be very careful in the way you do that careful guard guard yourself be, be diligent in the word fear the living God and the way you make these Corrections with other people knowing that they're your brothers and sisters in Christ if they profess Christ he promises that those foolishly zealous those hypocritically religious and most perverse pagans will be what glorified ultimately in Christ they will be brought to their intended end let God have his work in people push them and turn them to the word think about like what we prayed today um, from the scripture reading in, in terms of words of edification the building up of one another think about how roots of bitterness might be woven into our hearts as we're struggling and suffering and walking through this life together some people are going to offend you. They're going to say things that bother you. They say things that you don't like. I'm not, I'm not condoning people to just run their mouths. But I'm also not condoning for people to, to heap up uh, you know, sins and just pile sins on the backs of people that aren't really sins. To hold bitterness in their heart towards people for something that they shouldn't be. Let's look at a few examples to conclude that I believe are, are blatant in Scripture. There is a pagan that was called out of a pagan nation in Scripture who could only boast in the promises of God. His name was Abraham, right? Galatians 3.6, Paul says, he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now imagine, imagine like you're an outsider looking into Abraham's life and we know what Abraham's life looked like. We have his story. Was Abraham's life perfect? Once he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteous, anybody know the story of Abraham? We don't need to go through it today. Lied a few times, gave his wife to be taken as wife for kings. Cause he said, nope, that's my sister. It's not my wife because he feared his life, right? Think about all the things that Abraham did. Took Hagar as a wife. Oh, this is how God's going to complete the promises that he's given to me. Have Ishmael, Right? sarah laughed the guys they were not shining examples of righteousness yet we find that abraham believed god and it was accounted to him as righteousness he could boast in what not his own works but what in the promises of god there is a righteous man in scripture beyond comparison who could alone boast in his redeemer his name was job in the midst of deep suffering job had everything stripped away from him monetarily and bodily everything yet job looked forward to his redemption he says here in job 19 25 through 26 he says for i know that my redeemer lives and at least he will stand upon upon the earth after my skin has thus been destroyed yet my flesh i shall see god i'm gonna die but i'm gonna see god i know this what was job dealing with he has some awesome counselors right do you, know what, do you know what the problem with Job's counselors were? After, after a week or so, they started running their mouth. And they started accusing Job of doing something that he wasn't doing. That like Job had to repent. Hey, Job, there's something, man. There's something up. The reason why all this disaster is happening in your life right now, you, no man would go through what you're going through, Job, unless he didn't, God had issues with him, right? That's like the condensed version of Job. And in the end, what do we find out? God reveals himself to Job declares who he is job repents because he started accusing god of doing wrong even though god brought a bitter providence in his life allowed allowed satan to sift him and what was satan's challenges do you guys remember or what was his challenges he had two challenges listen the the reason job doesn't curse you or he loves you and he's devoted to you is because you bless his life look at all that he has he's a wealthy man surely strip all that away from him and he'll curse you to your face so god says okay strip him all those things preserve his life spare his life you're not allowed to kill him you know take it all from him guys invading military like you know uh tribes and countries wiped job out killed all his family members burned his houses down stole his flocks i mean it was bad and there's like one servant, you know, that came and said, hey, all your kids are dead. Hey, all your stuff got burned down. Hey, a bunch of stuff got stolen. And he, you know, falls to the ground and he, you know, he's like, naked I've come into the world, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he says, so look, consider Job. Consider my servant Job. God again to Satan. Consider him. Well, okay, he didn't curse you, right? This is a Jeremy paraphrase version. But... I know this about man. You strip their health away from him. You take that away from him. Surely he'll curse you to your face. Okay, you could do anything you want to him basically until just like basically bring him to the brink of death. And then he'll, you know, but you can't kill him. He won't curse me. And not until the very end of Job, which Job was going through some pretty dire stuff, did he start thinking, man, what's up, dude? I don't even know like what's going on. And his counselors were harping on him his counselors were what i would consider the overly righteous and the overly wise they had completely missed the point and the reason i would make that argument is these men knew you look at their theology they had some solid theology these counselors weren't like stupid men they were counseling him the wrong way god called them to repentance he said make for them a sacrifice and i'll forgive them in the end they were in the wrong elihu acknowledged that in the very end there was a prostitute and a Moabite in Scripture who could only boast in a great deliverer. By faith, Rahab, according to the author of Hebrews in 1131, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. Joshua talks about this in more detail. Joshua 625 says, Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved a life. Yeah, he saved a life. And she lived in Israel to this day. And because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out in Jericho. Why? Because she feared God. She feared God. She was a prostitute, you guys. How do people treat prostitutes these days? Are we so overly righteous that a prostitute would not be welcome among us? Think about that. Would not be welcome in your house. Maybe you wouldn't even have a conversation with her or him what about the Moabite you need to realize that the ancestors of King David are all in the genealogy of Christ were Rahab and Ruth the Moabite listen to this Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab which is really interesting that those ladies names are mentioned by name and it was delivered by them that these children were delivered by them in the genealogy and Boaz was a Kingsman redeemer if you remember that right of Ruth he was the father of Obed. And remember, the Moabites were sworn enemies of the Israelites. Yet, Mo, the, this Moabite was taken in by this kinsman redeemer, Boaz. There's a whole book devoted to her, which is a really beautiful story of what it means to be a kinsman redeemer, from a foreign nation. This woman was from a foreign nation. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of who? King David. So. King David was Rahab's great-great-grandson and uh, Ruth's great-grandson. We need to remember that the Lord is gracious to prostitutes and even Israel's sworn enemies. And if you remember uh, the Moabites, uh, for example, uh, King Balak, who sent out Balaam to curse Israel um, during the conquest. Was a moabite king and so was eglon who ended up being killed and so these people were fierce enemies of of the jews so think about it like just read the story of ruth it's an it's amazing beautiful story she says basically she's following naomi back to the homeland a widow and she says you know what my people are your people now like because she's like why are you following me you know why are you coming back you should stay here with your people she's like i don't know your people are my people and your god is my god same idea uh you know with uh, rahab and jericho right uh no no god of israel is my god you to wreck this place in a judge this place like he did every other place on his way here we're just in we're in line for for judgment i'm hiding the spies they're going to spy out the land and i'm going to i'll risk my own life knowing it's better to fear this god than the gods of jericho same idea if anyone had the ability to boast it would have been the hebrew of hebrews the pharisee of pharisees the apostle paul paul said he could straight up boast in his flesh listen to what he says i myself have reason for confidence in the flesh this is in um philippians 3 4 through 11. if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh i have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of israel of the tribe of benjamin Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whoa, those are some pretty fair boasts in the flesh, right? He says, though, but whatever I had gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Whoa. (laughs) We're not on par with Paul right and Paul even says to himself that's all rubbish doesn't matter Paul could even boast in his good works he said compare that with uh, the second Corinthians 11 16 through 12, 12 10. but Paul concludes in this listen to what he says even in boasting in these good works in uh, chapter 12 7 through 10 he says to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations that he had received this insight of being an apostle right a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that He would le- that uh, that it would leave me. But what did the Lord say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for the sake of Christ. That I am content with weakness insults hardships persecutions and calamities anybody experiencing those things today right (laughs) might be your weaknesses a thorn in the flesh difficulties pain suffering well you can boast in Christ's sufficiency in you and I love what he says Paul says the Lord gave me these things to keep me from becoming conceited based on all of these revelations and this wisdom that he had given me think about that we know that in the life of paul that people despised him for these thorns that's really interesting think about it like you have a hard time receiving from me he said because of these thorns in person i am weak before you but in word and in letter powerful like some of them looked at him like oh man like man when you write paul you're coming at it. You're coming at it hard. You bring, you bring it. But when we see you in person, you're just like, is that Paul? Sure. Right? This is Apostle Paul. I don't know. I kind of have zero respect for him now. Right? There's something going on with him in these ailments that he suffered that would cause people to think maybe he's not worthy of respect, dignity, or honor as an apostle. A lot of believe that it has something to do with his eyes. Um, there was a thief on the cross. That could boast in nothing but the cross of christ if you think about it listen to what this thief says uh, this is in luke 23 through 39 uh, 23 39 through 43 he says one of the criminals were hanged and railed at him this is next to jesus he says are you not the christ save yourself and us <laughs> but the other rebuked him this is the other person on the cross uh on a cross next to christ this other one rebuked this guy saying do you not fear god Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man did nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, listen to what he says. Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. (laughs) Man, remember me. I recognize who you are, and I need you. I need your forgiveness. I deserve this condemnation, but you don't. And Jesus said to him, What? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a beautiful thing, right? By the way, this destroys any Presbyterian need for baptism, dude. There we have it. This is why we're Baptists. He could look at this man. Jesus looked at this man on the cross and said, You know who I am. You know what I'm here for. You know what I'm going to accomplish. You're going to be with me in paradise. Two, two stories of two people types. One, one, on, one on one side and one on the other. One condemned and going to be destroyed. Literally rebuking Jesus saying, save us from this stuff. And the other one's going, he is saving us from this stuff. Hey, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. This guy, you're missing the whole point of it. The other guy, you get it. You're going to be with me in paradise. Two people. He could boast of nothing but the cross. And then lastly, and I think one of the most pertinent examples for us, uh, in, in light of this text: a tax collector could boast in the mercy and grace of God. Think of this. So you guys know anything about tax collectors during this time in the Roman Empire? Any Bible students out there know that a tax collector like Matthew, who was an apostle, was not respected. Why? They were seen as a defector. They were seen as one who was a, a traitor. Of the Israelites, because they were working for their great enemy Rome, who had conquered them, collecting money from them as though they had ruled over them when only God was their king. And what were they hoping for? Thing about Simon the Zealot. Simon was like eager to overthrow this kingdom. He he couldn't wait for the Messiah to show up, which was one of the great expectations of the time. So that these tax collectors. These capitulators, these traitors, these defectors would be destroyed along with everyone else. Why? Because they had a zeal for the kingdom of God. And when the Messiah shows up, we're on his side. And look, look how faithful we've been. (laughs) And then Matthew is brought into the fold. Can you imagine? I always think, like, what would that have been like? Simon the Zealot, part of the fold, Matthew. Jesus probably had to break up some fights. I'm just imagining that, you know. Think about that. Listen to the way the Pharisees treated these tax collectors in Luke 18:9 through 14 Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others as a result of that with contempt Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus God I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But then the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Imagine the Pharisee's like this. I'm so thankful I'm not like this guy, right? You know? And 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 the other guy is just like ashamed. Think about him. Can't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's beating his chest. He's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the meek inherit the earth. We know that the humble are the ones that are received. That It says that you look at those ones who are humble, who are contrite, who are hungry and believe in your word, who trust themselves to a faithful creator to redeem them, who recognize who they were. It doesn't matter what kind of background they came from. They might have been raised in a godly home their entire life, but they could die a Pharisee, believing that they are somehow righteous in and of themselves, pointing at others and looking down their noses upon them as though just because they've never been caught up in the kind of Destruction, destructive pattern of wickedness like um, these people have somehow makes them a better choice for You, Lord. When in reality, like all the righteous men of the world ever, ever admitted to being righteous, that You ever uh, saying that they were, I think of David as one of the ultimate examples of a man who is after your own heart was an adulterer, a convicted adulterer. Men who struggled, who were weak, often faltered we all realize that we fall short before you we are like Isaiah men of unclean lips who dwell among the men of unclean lips we have nothing to offer you with the exception to boast in what Christ has given to us I pray that Lord you would convict those today who struggle with those things deliver them of this bondage that they have put on themselves Lord that they are struggling and really, Lord, they need to be set free from it. It's a bondage. They need to experience what it means to be freed in Christ. I pray for them today that they would experience that. We pray for those who don't know you, who are, in a sense, destined to destruction. Lord, we pray that if there were some today that might be in that place today here among us, that you would save them, open their eyes and ears and their heart, that they would turn and love you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen.